Being Cool Books, Episode 20, Nice Place, Nice Peoples. Pullman does something pretty interesting in this chapter, Bullvanger Lights. It's to do with light. This title directs our attention to, also to do with whiteness, which perhaps falls to other authors, such as Herman Melville in Moby Dick, or Toni Morrison in her work, Playing in the Dark, to help us see. Perhaps not, though. The roles of light and of whiteness have both been emphasized quite a bit throughout the Golden Compass, as in so many mythic fantasy stories and video games, and they'll only be developed further along the same lines in this chapter. Unmistakably, whiteness gains a racial component here, if that was tacit or beside the point in Pullman's use of the color imagery before. And the light sources which feature so prominently in many key scenes, here take on, a little surprisingly, an overtly sinister aspect. I wanted to bring out these two foci up front, and I'll try in what follows to find a balance, not to make too much of Pullman's intriguing use of light and whiteness among the rest of the story we get in this chapter, which has a pivotal plot development. But I also want to follow these two related images as the guiding thread for my elliptical, I hope, not hyperbolic, read and analysis. Before we get into the text, a word about Bolvanger, too. Kaiser, the goose demon of the witch clan queen Serafina Pekala, has translated the word for us as the fields of evil. I didn't note it at the time, but on reflection, the title evokes an echo or pun of Baudelaire's epochal Les Fleurs de Mal, The Flowers of Evil. And the French poet is one Pullman cites at least twice in his essays, both in the context of discussing modernism, some of modern, uh, modernity's darker elements. Uh, once in his talk on Manet's unsettling painting, A Bar at the Folie Bergère, and once in his preface to Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. He may well have read Baudelaire in French, and he certainly studied both French and poetry in his youth, though he wished he'd studied more art. I bring it up partly because I don't want to lose sight of Pullman's fascination with language, even as we tend to focus, naturally, on what he does with it, the content and themes of his story. But language itself, specifically in the form of foreign languages, is noteworthy in this chapter. So we'll also watch for that. So here's the opening. The fact that the Egyptians had heard or seen nothing of Mrs. Coulter worried Father Coram and John Fa more than they let Lyra know. But they weren't to know that she was worried too. Lyra feared Mrs. Coulter and thought about her often. And whereas Lord Asriel was now father, Mrs. Coulter was never mother. The reason for that was Mrs. Coulter's demon, the golden monkey who had filled Pantalaimon with a powerful loathing, and who, Lyra felt, had pried into her secrets, and particularly that of the alethiometer. And they were bound to be chasing her. It was silly to think otherwise. The spy fly proved that, if nothing else. But when an enemy did strike, it wasn't Mrs. Coulter. It's a reprise of what we saw at the beginning of Chapter 7, John Fa, with the shift that Lyra is at least somewhat aware this time of the Egyptians' concern, and 
she's worried about Mrs. Coulter and actively concealing it from them in turn. This increase in self-consciousness seems linked to her sense of herself as part of a family now, and all the difficulties that brings. As formidable as Lord Asriel is, and as large as he looms in Lyra's imagination, we've seen Pan actually take the same form as his snow leopard demon. In the lies that she tells to cover her identity, just as in the stories she's told to lord it over others, Lyra will incorporate this father figure. As for her mother, it's not Mrs. Coulter's deceitfulness, which after all Lyra's inherited, witch oil in her soul, as Ma Costa puts it, but it's the golden monkey demon which Lyra balks at owning in that conceptual space of, quote, mother, unquote. Pan loathes the nameless monkey. Though he's imitated his form, it was in play. And curiously, in that moment, when Lyra pushed him into the water of the bath, maybe the last bath that they're allowed to take together, Lyra suddenly got worried about the alethiometer she'd left in her pocket. So this association with the gold monkey and the golden instrument only gets reinforced from there. That moment is also right after Lyra sees herself in the mirror, looking different than she'd ever seen herself, due to the soft lighting around it. Carrying the theme of looking, prying, spying further, we're reminded again of the spy flies. That, if nothing else, makes it clear that we're privy to Lyra's thoughts here. The narrator plays up this limited view, building suspense doubly by raising the specter of Mrs. Coulter here at the start, and then withholding her, only to spring another unforeseen enemy on us, and then bringing Mrs. Coulter back in right at the end of the chapter. The narrator remarks here that Lee has two balloons, apparently, and in contrast to the unprepared Egyptians who need to rest and get ready for the assault, He's astute as a sailor at predicting the fog which descends, keeping him grounded for now, so he can only recheck his own preparations, which, as we're told, provingly are meticulous. And on that note, the ambush strikes. Then, with no warning at all, a volley of arrows flew out of the dark. Three Egyptian men went down at once, and died so silently that no one heard a thing. Only when they slumped clumsily across the dog traces or lay unexpectedly still did the nearest men notice what was happening, and then it was already too late, because more arrows were flying at them. Some men looked up, puzzled by the fast, irregular knocking sounds that came from up and down the line as arrows hurtled into wood or frozen canvas. The first to come to his wits was John Fa, who shouted orders from the center of the line. Cold hands and stiff limbs moved to obey, as yet more arrows flew down like rain, straight rods of rain tipped with death. So noticing and not noticing, the basic ones and zeros of consciousness, if you like, are connected here with death. Those nameless Egyptians' deaths are treated far differently from the pathos surrounding Tony Makarios, or even Jacob, the spy struck with an arrow while infiltrating the Ministry of Theology. Though something of the same confusion his demon describes is conveyed here, chiefly in the ominous sounds of the arrows and the subsequent confusion, through which John Fah's cry and then Yorick's counterattack cut, but too late for these men. And despite Pan's attempts to make Lyra less of a target, knocking her down in the snow and then fighting back when he's tackled in turn, 
She can't escape this time as she did from the throwing nets. The tables are turned. She can ask who was them, but too late, since she should have checked the alethiometer sooner. Her anguish at the plight of the ambushed Egyptians and at her failure to foresee this turns to her becoming dizzy and breathless and hurt as she's captured and hurled, bound and blind, onto what must, by its movement, be a sledge. The rage and fear Lyra and the reader feel at this build on what she felt on being ensnared by the throwing nets, but still only foreshadow, and they will be surpassed by what happens in Bolvanger, by the silver guillotine. There, this more physical emotion will combine with the moral revulsion she felt on discovering Tony in the fish house. Here, as Pan points out, she feels at least partly responsible by her error of omission, not reading the alethiometer. And her concern for herself is also mixed with worrying about John Fa, who Pan saw get hit, and the others. They fear, rightly, that she'll be taken to the gobblers. And though the word severed comes to their mind, they're still together. Pan helps Lyra breathe, literally and metaphorically, and they resolve to fight when it comes to it. They hope Yorick will come to the rescue and take the sort of vengeance the Egyptian woman so pined for. But they bide their strength for now, pretending to be unconscious, a motif which will recur throughout this part of the story. Not least, our negative emotions are still tempered by curiosity at this point, too. Who's captured them? They have strange voices, and Pen remarks, they look like Tartars. Finally, we've been hearing about them since the first chapter. After they had been driving along for such a time that Lyra's body was in torment from cramp, the pace slackened to little, and someone roughly pulled off the hood. She looked up at a broad Asiatic face under a wolverine hood, lit by flickering lamplight. His black eyes showed a glint of satisfaction especially when Pantalaimon slid out of Lyra's anorak to bare his white, ermine teeth in a hiss. The man's demon, a big, heavy wolverine, snarled back, but Pantalaimon didn't finch. That's the detail of the broad Asiatic face. We get one pole of racial difference set up, depending for its charge on our recognizing its opposite pole, which we'll get in the White Doctor at Bolvanger, if we haven't already gotten it from that note of the white ermine teeth of Pantalaimon, reminding us of Lyra's own Englishness, we'll see that the Doctor in Bolvanger and the hunter here share a look of satisfaction on seeing Pan. The immediate contrast, though, is between the hunters and Egyptians. Through the snow that was falling and the thick fog, she saw how powerful this man was, and the sledge driver too, how balanced in the sledge, how much at home in this land in a way the Egyptians weren't. The man spoke, but of course she understood nothing. He tried a different language with the same result. Then he tried English. You name? So the kidnapper tries two other languages before asking in English your name. As displaced as she is physically, so Lyra is culturally far from her home. But the question also gives her more hope, 
since they're not knowing who she is implies that she hasn't been recognized by these hunters. These men can't have been sent by Mrs. Coulter. Warned by Pan, but already thinking along the same lines, she gives the name Lizzie Brooks. All I can make of that one is that she shares her initials, but the name sounds much more ordinary than her real one. Brooks even evokes a similarly watery image as Belacqua, only a much watered-down one. The diminutive Lizzie will match the persona that Lyra devises in the course of this chapter. Alas, we find out they are Samoyed peoples, hunters, not warlike Tartars after all. The man's broken English, with curt sentences and extraneous S on people, is undercut somewhat by a perfectly idiomatic expression, we got you anyway, he says, taunting Lyra. The verb to get is notoriously tricky for learners of English, but presumably it's one these hunters have to use often enough to have fairly mastered. It's also a taunt about Yorick, perhaps partly effusive relief at having escaped from the Panzerbjörn, perhaps partly an attempt to get Lyra to divulge more information. But either way, she doesn't rise to it. She spins what seems to be a convincing lie about the Egyptians being a party of traitors, one she'll develop under pressure from the doctor at Bolvanger. The hunters take it without further comment. More directly than at any point since his seagull flight, we're told Pan and Lyra feel each other's thoughts, which is interesting, to feel a thought. And perhaps this helps to explain what part of the soul the demon represents, that feeling part. And Lyra steps out of her immediate feelings enough to, as we say in English, feel sorry for herself, which in other languages might be represented by the middle or reflexive voice. Or, in our language, it makes us dual, sufferer and observer. It's another first in the context of Lyra's self-awareness. It comes weirdly parallel to the way she felt um, that she um, uh, that she felt and thought on riding the bear, first alone and exalting, though also abashed at how she must look to Yorick, and then holding on to Tony and pitying, though also resolving to show him compassion. Here she is captive, riding a sledge without anyone except for Pan, of course. That thinking, feeling, which is part of her and yet also other who helps her. In a gesture which will again be echoed by the doctor, the hunters give Lyra some dried reindeer to eat. She manages to check that the alethiometer is safe and to push the spy fly tin down into her boot with Pan's help before falling asleep for real, exhausted by fear. That sets the stage for a surreal awakening. She woke up when the motion of the sledge changed. It was suddenly smoother, and when she opened her eyes, there were passing lights dazzling above her, so bright she had to pull the hood further over her head before peering out again. She was horribly stiff and cold, but she managed to pull herself upright enough to see that the sledge was driving swiftly between a row of high poles, each carrying a glaring ambaric light. As she got her bearings, they passed through an open metal gate at the end of the avenue of lights and into a wide open space like an empty marketplace or an arena for some game or sport. 
It was perfectly flat and smooth and white, and about a hundred yards across, around the edge ran a high metal fence. At the far end of this arena, the sledge halted. They were outside a low building, or a range of low buildings, over which the snow lay deeply. It was hard to tell, but she had the impression that tunnels connected one part of the buildings with another. Tunnels humped under the snow. At one side, a stout metal mast had a familiar look, though she couldn't say what it reminded her of. The lights of Bulvanger form an avenue which leads to an empty space. To read that metaphorically, the light and the way, traditionally, like the fish, symbols for spiritual reality, the light of the world, the way, and the truth, have been reduced, fragmented, to the blindingly, brightly lit approach to a dead end, a kind of marketplace, or arena, flat, smooth, and white. Circumscribing this emptiness are the vague shapes of buildings under the snow joined by unclear tunnels, and that mast jutting up familiar but unrecognizable for now. With the searchlight that then comes on, we see that the function of the light is not so much to guide, certainly not to give life, as it is to show up anyone who comes near, to see without being seen. Only when the hunter holds Lyra forth like a trophy, continuing the arena or gladiatorial imagery, does the representative of the compound step forth. Though he speaks to them in their own language, Lyra contrasts his appearance with that of the hunters. Lyra saw his features. He was not a Samoyed or a Tartar. He could have been a Jordan scholar. Um, this picks up on the reminders from the previous chapter in her attempts to recall what the Palmyrian professor was saying about the Bear King and telling Lee how Azriel tricked the scholars when they didn't want to look too closely at the head frozen in the vacuum-sealed block of ice, and how she showed Tony the respects accorded to the remains in the crypt. Now, along with the overtones of arrogant knowledge, shrinking from carnality, themselves subject to death, scholars are ranged as a class over against these hunters. And what's emphasized in this is uh, his appearance, familiar and normative to Lyra, and thus all the more surprising to find in this remote place. When he addresses Lyra, his opening question is similarly unexpected. Aside from asking if she speaks English, he asks, does your demon always take that form? Of all the unexpected questions, Lyra could only gape but Pantalaimon answered it in his own fashion by becoming a falcon, launching himself from her shoulder at the man's demon, a large marmot, which struck up at Pantalaimon with a swift movement and spat as he circled past on swift wings. I see, said the man in a tone of satisfaction, as Pantalaimon returned to Lyra's shoulder. That question simply because it refers to something that she's always taken for granted, uh, is quite unexpected. Pan's answering attack on the man's marmot demon, far from intimidating him, only elicits satisfaction. Uh, 
did you notice how the man's demon and pantalimon are both given the adjective swift? Um, now, the hunters clearly knew what the right answer to this question would be, and they showed the same satisfaction on first seeing Pan change. Upon receiving their payment, more coins, they vanished the way that they'd come. Lyra gives the same fake name when he asks for that next, and as she tries to place his accent, she further compares this man to the people that she met at Mrs. Coulter's, perhaps because of his show of politeness, asking her name and inviting her inside. At this point, realizing how eager he is to get back inside from the cold, she decides to play slow, dim-witted, reluctant, in line with what Pan has said, pretend to be unconscious, and what he's about to reinforce. Once inside, the artificial lights are joined by artificial heat, which feels sweltering to Lyra after the Arctic cold. The reception desk that we get in there shifts the locus of comparison from the marketplace or arena effect of the empty space outside to a more institutional hospital atmosphere within the hidden buildings same quality of light and surfaces, described as brilliant, shiny, white, is evident within. And there are intimations that this brilliance similarly conceals a terrible threat by its blank efficiency. Having met Tony Macarios, we know more or less what that threat is. But knowing it vicariously and knowing it firsthand are very different sorts of knowing. So beneath the food smells is a medical smell, and beneath the ambient noise, a low humming you either get used to or go mad, we're told. The other way out of this dichotomy, of course, is to escape the institution, or even unmake it, so that neither one's sanity nor one's principles are compromised. The best way to do so as Pan's goldfinch form suggests, is to play along, pretending to be stupid, dim, slow, and thus to use the institution's smug superiority against it. So Lyra lets the men talk about her as if she doesn't matter. English, the first man was saying, traitors apparently, usual hunters, usual story, same tribe as far as I could tell, Sister Clara, could you take little, um, and see to her? Certainly, Doctor. Come with me, dear, said the nurse, and Lyra obediently followed. So she obediently follows Sister Clara out, after the nameless doctor has already forgotten her name. It was a false one, anyway. Sister Clara's name reminds us that this scientific dystopia is under the auspices of the church, and Clara evokes the dominant light imagery, but also ironically points up the nurse's own obvious dimness as well. The nurse was about as old as Mrs. Coulter, Lyra guessed, with a brisk, blank, sensible air. She would be able to stitch a wound or change a bandage, but never to tell a story. Her demon, and Lyra had a moment of strange chill when she noticed, was a little white trotting dog, 
and after a moment she had no idea why it had chilled her. So Mrs. Coulter remains a point of reference, just beneath the surface, and the nurse's personality mirrors the place, brisk, blank, sensible, white, we might assume. We saw the terrifying heat that Mrs. Coulter's superficial calm concealed. But Sister Clara seems incapable of such passions, or even such felt thoughts as curiosity or imagination, as the narrator puts it. She's unable to tell a story, that is, to enter into or recreate imaginatively the experience of being alive. Instead of the fierce golden monkey, she has a little white trotting dog. Lyra, parenthetically, we're told, two separate parenthetical statements in this one sentence, which must be a unique thing in the book, uh, Lyra intuitively senses that something is off about it, uh, but she can't tell what it is. Again, by its repetition, if nothing else, the whiteness is conspicuous, uncanny in the technical sense of seeming blandly normal and yet impeccably strange at the same time. For the first time in the story, as the nurse goes about measuring Lyra, we get a concrete indication of how old Lyra is. It's ambiguous, though. Is she actually older than 11 and gives this lower number since she's small for her age? We're told, anyhow, that she'll use her smallness to her advantage to avoid attention. And will, in the second book, and the witches too, develop this idea further. Even in danger, though, we're reminded of Lyra's sense of her own importance. Brisk and blank, the nurse asks none of the expected questions, though the doctor will. Instead, she proceeds with a delightful parody of normalcy. Off with the rest, dear, she said. We'll have a quick little look to see you're nice and healthy, no frostbite or sniffles, and then we'll find some nice clean clothes. We'll pop you in the shower too, she added, for Lyra had not changed or washed for days and in the enveloping warmth, that was becoming more and more and evident. The equivalence implied there between frostbite and sniffles could be a joke, but every indication is that Sister Clara is perfectly earnest. The bath inspires resistance, first from Pantalaimon, actually, but it's not the kind that Lyra used to show against Mrs. Lonsdale back at Jordan. Rather, it's more something that she learned at Mrs. Coulter's shame, modesty. Only now, she also has the presence of mind to conceal it, in line with her persona. The most dramatic inversion of Mrs. Coulter is displayed by Sister Claire on feeling the weight of the alethiometer and taking it out to see what it is. She went to drop it on the pile with Lyra's other clothes, but stopped, feeling the edge of the alethiometer. What's this, she said, and unbuttoned the oilcloth. Just a sort of toy, said Lyra. It's mine. Yes, we won't take it away from you, dear, said Sister Claire, unfolding the black velvet. That's pretty, isn't it? Like a compass. Into the shower with you, she went on, putting the alethiometer down and whisking back a coal silk curtain in the corner. Her remark there, 
That's pretty, like a compass. Uh, could be the strongest possible condemnation of the U.S. publisher who changed the title from Northern Lights to Golden Compass. As she downplays herself, Lyra successfully downplays the alethiometer. A toy, she says, and mine. We're told they're conscious that Pan must not be too lively, for the demons of dull people were dull themselves. So hopefully Pan's spontaneous attack on the marmot has not given them away already. In lieu of telling stories, the only sort of writing Sister Clara can do is to note down Lyra's measurements on the clipboard. The clothes that she gives her remind Lyra of Tony's, and again Lyra insists on her rights of property. She stops short of demanding a real answer when she asks where they are, for though the experimental station is so anodyne as to mean nothing, Lizzie Brooks wouldn't point that out. Once more, Sister Clara ups the ante, and once more Lyra meets it, accepting a rag doll when prompted to choose from the drawer where soft toys uh, lay like dead things. Um, that offer of a woolly bear, or, or of the doll for that matter, may make us remember Yorick and how he likened the armor of inferior metal to a demon doll stuffed with sawdust. We'll remember it again when we meet his usurper in Svalbard. And Lyra will finally remember what else it was that the Palmyrian professor was saying, which made no sense at the time. The narrator continues to set up more business with the spy fly, as under the cover of a fortuitous telephone call, Lyra moves the tin from one hiding place in her boot back into the pouch of the alethiometer, which is now fastened privately under her skirt. We confront the doctor with the marmot demon once more, on his own territory now. The cafeteria shows chinks in the smooth new world order of Bolvanger, some concessions to humanity, specifically to childhood, in the dirty dishes and the careless sticky rings left by drinks. A huge photogram of a tropical beach betrays that light alone is not enough. It's the quality of the light and what it shows that people care about. It might also remind us of the association of Mrs. Coulter with the warm south. She also lured children with food, and the familiar stew and mashed potatoes, canned peaches, and warm milk, which Lyra innocently accepts and gobbles up, will similarly conceal a sleeping pill. Before it takes effect, though, she remains on her guard, noticing the doctor's demon is not incurious as the nurse's, and avoids, and avoid, she avoids its gaze as she avoids as much as possible divulging anything in her answers to the doctor's questions. She vaguely alludes to her father, to trading, to envy of her brothers, and then she seizes on the discrepancy in the doctor's account of what happened and perhaps channels her actual emotions about it to cut off the interrogation by insisting on the simple truth. Good, good. Well, Lizzie, you're a lucky little girl. Those huntsmen who found you brought you to the best place you could be. They never found me, she said doubtfully. There was a fight. 
There was lots of them, and they had arrows. Oh, I don't think so. I think you must have wandered away from your father's party and got lost. Those huntsmen found you on your own and brought you straight here. And that's what happened, Lizzie. I saw a fight, she said. They were shooting arrows and that. I want my dad, she said more loudly, and felt herself beginning to cry. Well, you're quite safe here until he comes, said the doctor. But I saw them shooting arrows. Ah, oh, you thought you did. That often happens in the intense cold, Lizzie. You fall asleep and have bad dreams, and you can't remember what's true and what isn't. That wasn't a fight. Don't worry. Your father is safe and sound, and he'll be looking for you now, and soon he'll come here, because this is the only place for hundreds of miles, you know. And what a surprise he'll have to find you safe and sound. Now Sister Clara will take you along to the dormitory, where you'll meet some other little girls and boys who got lost in the wilderness just like you. Off you go. We'll have another little talk in the morning. The dismissal here of Lizzie's reality as bad dreams, and maybe even the allusion to huntsmen rather than hunters as a kind of fairy tale quality to it. In its way, these are expressions of the same hubris and dismissiveness as the kidnappings themselves, or of the severing of children from their demons. Plainly, the existence of Bolvanger, with its lights, and the gobbler's chilling experiments, all represent the ultimate outcome of so cavalierly and dishonestly meddling with what's true and what isn't. The irony of Lyra having met just such a child actually lost in the wilderness is only matched by the barely concealed threat of the one true statement among the doctor's lies, that this is the only place for hundreds of miles. He leaves open the possibility of another talk in the morning, but we never hear more about it. So it may just have been a way of saving face as he found himself stymied by the girls and transigent. He also knows he needs to send her to bed before the pill takes effect. The narration simulates Lyra's loss of consciousness. More corridors, and Lyra was tired by now. So sleepy, she kept yawning and could hardly lift her feet in the woolly slippers they'd given her. Pantalimon was drooping, and he had to change to a mouse and settle inside her dressing gown pocket. Lyra had the impression of a row of beds, children's faces, a pillow, and then she was asleep. The narration uh, picks up right after that. Someone was shaking her. Right. So it's only after Lyra's new roommates managed to wake her that we understand what's happened. That abrupt jump in time, without changing the setting, is uncharacteristic of the narration, but it effectively makes us as disoriented as Lyra herself. Still, the first thing she does is to make sure the alethiometer is still safe. Actually, both tins are. And though opening her eyes is like pushing a boulder up a slope, she remembers to use the name Lizzie. simile there reminds us of Sisyphus, popularized for the 20th century by Camus' interpretation, and a description of her head feeling full of eiderdown uh, makes Lyra sound like one of the soft dolls in the drawer. 
In the dim light from a very low-powered ambaric bulb over the doorway, she saw three other girls clustered around her. It wasn't easy to see, because her eyes were slow to focus, but they seemed about her own age, and they were speaking English. At least this room's light is dim, not harsh and blinding, and by its illumination, Lyra can begin to learn more of the truth about Bolvanger from the other girls. Their conversation is driven more by what they don't know than what they do, and what they don't tell her, and what they want to know from her, which is presumably at least part of why they woke her up. But Lyra soon turns it and finds out quite a bit that there are boys there as well, but that they don't know their names, since they're usually kept apart, that there's 40 or so kids total, which seems like a sort of a small number given what we'll hear later, but, but then they normally bring in big groups from which kids disappear one by one. They're gobblers, said the plump girl. You know, gobblers. We was all scared of him till he was caught. Lyra was gradually coming more and more awake. The other girl's demons, apart from the rabbit, were close by listening at the door, and no one spoke above a whisper. Lyra asked their names. The red-haired girl was Annie, the dark, plump one, Bella, the thin one, Martha. They didn't know the names of the boys, because the two sexes were kept apart for most of the time. They weren't treated badly. It's all right here, said Bella. There's not much to do, except they give us tests and make us do exercises, and then they measure us and take our temperature and stuff. It's just boring, really. Except when Mrs. Coulter comes, said Annie. So, Annie, like the musical, Bella and Martha, are briefly sketched in as individuals, but nowhere near to the extent of Tony Macario's, whose story remains a sort of archetype in the background. As for what they do, the tests, the exercises, just boring until Mrs. Coulter comes. They almost notice the pants flutter and Lyra has to cover for him. And somehow the kids know that whatever ultimately happened, Mrs. Coulter is responsible not only because she caught them in the first place, but because she likes to watch whatever it is they do. They also know that it has something to do with their demons and something to do with measuring dust. What dust? said Lyra. We don't know, said Annie. Just something from space. Not real dust. If you ain't got any dust, that's good. But everyone gets dust in the end. You know what I heard Simon say, said Bella. He said that the Tartars make holes in their skulls to let the dust in. Yeah, he'd know, said Annie scornfully. I think I'll ask Mrs. Coulter when she comes. You wouldn't dare, said Martha admiringly. I would. When's she coming, said Lara. Day after tomorrow, said Annie. So that's an interesting comment about getting dust and how everyone gets dust in the end. Um, and that there's holes in skulls to let dust in. That made me just think of what Lee was saying when he told Lyra about Stanislaus Grimman. That Mrs. Coulter is supposed to be coming the day after tomorrow ratchets up the stakes. And even this hint that Annie might try to talk to her, although we probably don't take it seriously, that could be interesting too. It lets us know anyway that this story will continue to move quickly, 
since we might be nervous by Lyra having been caught. The reminder of dust should also make us think about the lights that guide the entire story, northern lights. Think about how they compare with the Bolfanger lights. Uh, now, the other girls went on talking, but Lyra and Pantalaimon nestled down deep in the bed and tried to get warm, knowing that for hundreds of miles all around her little bed there was nothing but fear. That passage recalls what the doctor was saying, and it also should launch us into our topic for recess this week. It's not just a metaphor, that fear. The witches can perceive it, the way that bears can perceive intentions in battle. And that's the main element of the imaginary video game we might like to think about in this chapter. The Lotro mechanic of dread sounds a little like what we'd be going for. Here's how their uh, wiki describes it. Your mood and whether or not you're experiencing hope or dread affects your maximum morale, effective heals and damage received, your damage dealt, and the effective level of your skills. It can be affected by your location, by recent defeat, and by characters or objects nearby. Hope is granted by items, friendly NPCs, locations, and Edelham tokens. Dread is imposed by unfriendly NPCs, especially bosses and locations. With increased hope, the world becomes, or the world will be rendered more brightly. Conversely, greater dread will cause the world to become darker and less colorful. That's in the Lord of the Rings Online wiki. Except, of course, that last bit doesn't sound quite right. The dread power of Volvanger is manifested precisely in its glaring lights. And the power that Asriel exerts doesn't fall on the hope-dread spectrum so much as on one more or less simply quantitative. He has strong will and intention that inspire awe. Other characters' weak wills denote their cowed acceptance. The effect of fear, it seems, could in this case actually be strengthening Lyra's will. But she has to conceal it, particularly from the alert marmot demon. With all that said, and bearing in mind how figures like Azriel and Mrs. Coulter dominate others, and Will and the witch assassin will use their powers of concealment, we need a mechanic which represents attention, generally more visible to the demon's viewpoint, and one which can hide some of that power of conscious attention. Almost rock-paper-scissors style, that hiding power in turn should be cut through by abilities like those of the bears or the angels. But the angels are physically weak, whereas the bears aren't, but they lack concealment. Something like that. The money belt, which Lyra and Jerry sewed from oilcloth back on the ship to Trollocend, with its two key items, are the only pieces of Lyra's equipment which she'll have kept with her at this point in the game. All the rest, her furs, everything like that, will be taken away, and new, much weaker clothing will be given to her in exchange. She'll also get the choice among the toys in the drawer, holding one of which will increase her concealment, but diminish her will. Perhaps that concealment mode will actually brighten everything, suffuse it with artificial light, and let the character be somewhat washed out in appearance as a consequence. Whereas in physical combat, a kind of tunnel vision will occur, throwing the surroundings into dimness and the combatants into relief. All through the game, perhaps we'll be getting 
intimations of these mechanics. But the concealment one will only be explained in any detail at this point. To account for the sense of power exuded by the hunters and their sleds, and the confidence of scholars in Jordan, or of the doctor once he's back indoors, uh, another sort of glow could be perceptible. But it would manifest chiefly as a bonus to the demon's energy and the character's willpower and attention. Side quests involving the three girls and the sleeping pills, perhaps. Simon's knowledge of trepanning could be worth exploring. But I'll have to think about those more. What else have I missed? I hope you'll send in your thoughts. Thanks for listening.